Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. We're located at connorsforum.org. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. I'm Lawrence Eppard. We've got a really interesting program for you today. Joining us in a moment is Pulitzer Prize winning Brown University scholar David Kurtzer to discuss his newest book, The Pope at War, The Secret History of Pius XII, Mussolini, and Hitler. It's based upon newly opened Vatican Archives documents, providing groundbreaking and explosive insight into the Pope's actions during World War II, including how he responded to the Holocaust. Considered one of the most controversial popes in history, Pope Pius XII died in 1958, and his papers were sealed in the Vatican secret archives. This left many unanswered questions about what he knew and what he did during the Second World War. While in 2020 his archives were finally opened, and our guest today, David Kurtzer, Widely recognized as one of the world's leading Vatican scholars, he's been mining those documents ever since, revealing how the Pope came to set aside his moral leadership in order to preserve his church's power. Harvard University professor Kevin Madigan wrote that, quote, This remarkably researched book is replete with revelations that deserve the adjective explosive. The Pope at War is a masterpiece, end quote. I'm very much looking forward to this very interesting topic. So please let us welcome David Kurtzer to the program. Happy to be with you. All right. So before we get to your new book, The Pope at War, The Secret History of Pius XII, Mussolini and Hitler, available on Amazon, anywhere you buy books, out from Random House, actually just this week. Um, Let's talk about your background. So tell us a little bit about your training, um, you know, your, your experience, all the stuff that prepares you to write about something like this. I'm actually a social anthropologist by background with an interest in politics and religion. Um, And then uh, actually now 25 years ago, I became interested in specifically the history of the Vatican and the Jews in Italy as well. So you put these together and it led to an interest in in 20th century and what happened to the Jews in Italy and more generally the Vatican, uh, Italian politics, and then eventually the Holocaust. So I did a, a book. They opened the archives uh, a number of years ago for the papacy of Pius XI, who was Pope in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and I published a book now in 2014, for so eight years ago, called The Pope and Mussolini, about the then Pope Pius XI, who came to power the same year as Mussolini came to power in 1922 and tells the story of the relationship between the Vatican and the fascist regime from uh, 22 to the Pope's death in 39. So the new book really is just a continuation of the story that I began with that earlier book. And uh, they brought about in part by the fact that the Pope, uh, Pope Francis, after decades of pressure on the Vatican to open the archives for World War II, uh, opened those archives. They opened for the first time in March of 2020 to scholars. And uh, luckily, I got to be one of the first people in there. So the book uh, takes advantage of those newly opened archives, as well as archives in, in five other countries. So I want to get to the opening of the archives and and how that came about and how you got access to that. But 
Um, and that was my next question, but I want to back up just a second because uh, something you said caught my ear, which is you said this book was only partially prompted by that. So had, were, you, were you already prepared to write on this topic and then this just added to that? Yes, I was you know, interested in this topic in World War II. There's been a huge controversy, especially about the silence of the Pope during the Holocaust. And the fact is, although the Vatican archives were yet to be opened, uh, there were archives, Italy, France, Germany, Britain, the U.S., which were open. Each of those countries had envoys to the Vatican during World War II, and they were sending essentially daily reports of their meetings through the um, years of the war, uh, their meetings with the people around the Pope and with the Pope himself. So I, I kind of made a, a bet that Pope Francis, as part of his opening, uh, would open up those archives. And so I spent years working in these other archives in those other countries, uh, looking at those reports. I digitized tens of thousands of pages of those archival documents. And uh, I sort of uh, got a lucky break because just as I finished all the uh, research in all those other archives, uh, the Pope did finally authorize the opening of the Vatican archives. So, uh, for somebody who's not familiar, before we get to um, how that happened and how you got access and all that kind of stuff, tell us a little bit about archival work. It seems like this takes a, a special kind of person to want to be diving into millions of pages of documents and translating them and digitizing them and making sense of them. I mean, give us a sense of, of um, sort of the the grittiness and nuts and bolts of this work, but also just the, the enormous amount of time this must take. Well, it does take years. And uh, I guess it does take a certain kind of personality in that there are a lot of frustrations. You can spend days working and find nothing that's going to be valuable to you. Uh, there are also practical problems. I mean, whereas in most state archives these days, you can bring your own cell phone and take pictures of the documents. This is forbidden in the Vatican. You'd be kicked out if you ever took out a cell phone and took a picture of a document. Uh, and in, there are all these practical uh, problems that you run into. So, for example, I've been working recently in the archives of the Holy Office, what used to be called the Holy Office of the Inquisition. And there, due to understaffing, they uh, don't have, well, they don't allow you to take pictures of the documents, but they also have no system for making copies for you. So the result is you can bring in your personal computer and sit there transcribing documents, but that's an extremely inefficient way to do research and very frustrating. Uh, so at each, each archive at the Vatican, let alone, of course, other state archives, has its own procedure for getting access and its own bureaucracy. And uh, in the case of the Vatican archives, there are limited spaces. So um, in the uh, the Secretary of State Archive of the Vatican, for example, I was just uh, in Italy three months working in the, in the archives, and I couldn't get a space in the last three months. Luckily, I had worked there earlier uh, for the book, but now I'm looking at the, for future projects, the post-war period, and I couldn't even get into the Secretary of State Archives. They only have half a dozen spots, and they said they were uh, full. So, um Again, the uh, if you work in, in, on the other hand, working in the Italian state archives for the fascist years is uh, fascinating because Mussolini had spies in the Vatican as he had spies elsewhere. And so you learn more working in those archives uh, during those years about what was going on behind the scenes in the Vatican than you could learn historically for any other period in the last you know, 1500 years. So there are also some special pleasures working in, there, in the archives as well. Now, I want to get to the the meat of the book in just one minute, but I got to ask you this question before we do. I don't want to 
bore people too much to death with the technicalities of this stuff. But uh, I do think it's an interesting question. So when do you hear the archives are opening? Uh, how do you get access? And how did you get your results to print so quickly? Well, the um, again, each archive is a different story. But when the, the Pope, it was in uh, early 2019, the Pope announced that uh, the following year, the archives would be open, the Vatican archives. They had actually been working probably for 10 years, putting papers in order. You have to realize there are millions and millions of pages of documents. And it doesn't help a, a researcher if you, they could say, you know, the archives are open, come on in. But then there's no guide to the material. And they point you to, you know, a thousand boxes of uncatalogued material and say, you know, dive right in. So it, you're really dependent on a system of um, cataloging of, of the materials. Uh, so in the case of the newly opened Vatican archives, for each different archive, for example, what used to be called the Vatican Secret Archive, uh, but curiously, the Pope just three years ago renamed it, got rid of the secret, and now it's called the Vatican Apostolic Archive. Uh, there's an online procedure months in advance for trying to reserve spots. You have to reserve seats. And there's also separately the Secretary of State Archive and the uh, Archive of the Holy Office, the former Inquisition Archive. And those were all important to to my research, along with some other ecclesiastical archives like the Jesuit archives, which are just outside the Vatican. Um, so these are you know, what you, you need to arrange in order to be able to do the work. In terms of how I got the book out so quickly, partly by making that bet that uh, they would open these Vatican archives. So having already worked in all these other archives in, in Germany, in, in France, in, in Italy, US, and Britain, having all that material uh, that I'd worked through uh, allowed me to work much more efficiently when the archives were open. That said, there's COVID, and that, that pro produced another problem, which is I was uh, there for the opening day of the archives, which was March 2nd, 2020, uh, worked there for a week when they then announced they're closing them down due to COVID. You may remember that Italy was kind of the epicenter in Europe of uh, COVID back then. Yeah, things got kind of scary there for a while. Fortunately, I have a, uh, a collaborator who works with me on a kind of larger project, uh, and he is based in Rome. He's Roman, a Roman scholar. And so when they reopened the archives in uh, June of 2020, he continued to work there, and we continued to be in daily contact. So uh, it was in good part thanks to uh, his ability to continue working there that I was able to complete this uh, book in time to come out right now. All right. Well, let's get to the meat of, of what your research is showing. So before the archives open, long before this book comes out, I think it was back in 2020, actually, uh, you wrote a piece, I think it was for The Atlantic, and you were talking about some big questions that these archives could answer. And so I want to go through these questions and maybe have you just shed a little light on um, if we know anything more about this. So, But a lot of our listeners are not going to be familiar with the historical background. So maybe first you could just give a cliff notes version of what it is I'm talking about and then tell us what have we learned. So, um, so the first is the big question that you said, which is um, the Pope's silence during the Holocaust and his reluctance to publicly condemn the Nazis. So tell us a little bit about what I just said, what that means, what happened and what we know more about now because of this new information. Yeah, so there's been a uh, quite bitter controversy about the Pope's failure to denounce the uh, Nazi campaign of uh, attempt to exterminate all of Europe's Jews while it was happening. 
And um, this probably publicly was uh, began with a play back in 1963 by a German playwright, Rolf Hachuth, play called The Deputy, which, by the way, was forbidden in Italy and not, not allowed to be performed there, given the influence of the Vatican. Uh, but it was performed throughout uh, much of the world. And it uh, has the Pope being begged by other prelates, other clergy, to speak out to denounce the mass murder of Europe's Jews. Uh, but his refusal to do so. Uh, then more recently, I think around 1999, John Cornwell had a best-selling book called Hitler's Pope, uh, along more or less the same lines. And uh, this has pr produced a very strong backlash by defenders of the Pope, who, by the way, there have uh, been attempts, there are ongoing attempts to make him a saint, Pius XII. And uh, the defenders would say that he, uh, yes, he was did not publicly speak out against the Holocaust, but it's because he thought that would uh, further anger Hitler against the Jews uh, and that the Pope could work more effectively behind the scenes in trying to protect Jews. So this has uh, continued to be a controversy where uh, the, there have been calls for opening the Vatican archives for many years as a result, and now they're open, and now I think we understand much better what was going on, not only what the Pope actually did or didn't do, but also why he made the decisions he did and what kind of advice he was getting from his closest advisors. This is all now known to us with the, the opening of the Vatican archives. And I think what we find uh, is, first of all, you have to ask when. In the first years of the war, the Pope, uh, along with most other people, thought Hitler was going to win the war. If you think of uh, 1940 in particular, in the spring, when he invades uh, westward, his army marches through Belgium, uh, the Netherlands, and France within a matter of weeks, drives the British, you know, Dunkirk, uh, humili in a humiliating fashion out of the continent. Uh, and so the Pope was preparing for Europe that would be under Nazi control, Nazi control together with uh, Hitler's comrade in arms, Mussolini. So if you want to understand, particularly in the first years of the war, say up to the end of 42, uh, what the Pope was doing, he was concerned in his uh, view to protect the institutional church in a Europe that could come under uh, Nazi domination. Then there's a second part of this story, which is when it becomes likely that, in fact, the Allies are going to win the war. And so by the end of 42, beginning of 43, uh, now there are somewhat different concerns on the part of the Pope that we now understand much better due to the opening of the archives and that I talk about in my book. Uh, first of all, who are the Allies that they're going to beat the uh, Nazis. The Allies include the Soviet Union, and the Pope and those around him are greatly afraid that Europe will come under Soviet and communist domination. Uh, and this is going to explain uh, partly why they, he's not going to denounce the ongoing mass murder of uh, the Jews of Europe by the Nazis and, and not antagonize the Germans. Related to this is who were the Nazis? Who, who was it who was murdering all the Jews in, in Europe? Uh, there were people who thought they were Christian. They didn't, didn't think they were pagans. Uh, and about half of them were Roman Catholic. The other half are Protestants of various kinds. And so the Pope was worried, and that we now understand this as a result of these newly opened archives, was worried that he would antagonize the Catholics in Germany if he denounced the German war. And he was afraid of a schism in the church. 
Uh, and of course, there was an old fear of schism in the church in Germany back from Reformation times in the 16th century. And he was worried if he spoke out against the Nazis, uh, then when the Nazis inevitably came to lose the war, they, uh, the Germans would blame him for their loss. And this would be taken out against, uh, not only against him, but against the, uh, the church uh, and against the Vatican. So these were, I think the, we now understand uh, the main considerations the Pope had for remaining silent. Now, in terms of that bitter debate that you referenced at the beginning of, of your answer, um, you know, in terms of people who were trying to make it sound as if the Pope, you know, w w wanted to do more and, you know, maybe behind the scenes could intervene or be doing something. Um, and the people that say no, you know, the silence was, you know, complicity or, or that he wasn't doing enough. It sounds like, and I, you tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is this new information comes down more so on the, on the latter than the former. Cause I, I believe you write in the book, you said that the Pope set aside his moral leadership in order to preserve his church's power. Um, is, do, you, do you think it comes more down the side of him sort of abdicating his responsibility? Yes, I and mean, I think uh, the you know, what bothers me about the papal apologists. You know, you, I think you can make a case for the Pope. Um, you know, he's acting under great pressure in very difficult times. He has competing demands on him in his role as Pope, and he makes the decisions he does. So that so one could, I think, come up with some kind of justification for his action that way. The problem is that that's not what those who defend the Pope during World War II, uh, his actions have done. And instead, they portray a man uh, who's courageous, who's risking it all uh, in order to save Jewish lives and so on. And that's just, uh, you know, just not true. Um, there's another part of the story, too, that I think uh, is important. And that is, how is it that the, the Axis powers here, I'm thinking of Germany, but also Italy, uh, were able to demonize Jews enough to allow people uh, to mur murder Jewish infants and Jewish old people and so on. Well, it was by, in no small part, uh, citing the church. And uh, the churches uh, that the popes had long taught that Jews were a um, nefarious uh, and dangerous part of the European population who needed to be controlled and who were working to dominate good Christians and so on. And Catholic publications were filled with this uh, stuff. And uh, people heard it from their parish priests as well. So this too is something that the Vatican has been unwilling to come to terms with. That it actually, um, you know, if the Pope didn't speak out, he wasn't. Part of the issue is that uh, the mass murder of the Jews of Europe was being caused in part by this history of uh, Christian demonization of Jews. Yeah, I mean, you say that the uh, Pope uh, Pius XII was more comfortable with authoritarians than, than with a democracy, and that uh, the fascists and what they were doing in oppressing the Jews uh, in terms of what, you know, Mussolini's uh, racial policies were justifying in no small part um, as simply putting into practice restrictions on the Jews long urged by the Pope. So your argument is that they wanted a certain level of oppression, but maybe not mass murder. Right. And uh, in fact, it's important to understand that the Curia, I mean, the 24 or so cardinals who make up the main administration of the church back in World War II, uh, they were virtually all Italian. So in fact, there was only one who wasn't Italian, who was French. And similarly, virtually all the nuncios, the ambassadors of the Pope 
in other countries were Italian. Um, and in this context, Italy, Mussolini in 1938, so before the war began, introduced the so-called racial laws, anti-Semitic laws that threw all Jewish children out of school, fired all Jewish teachers and professors, and uh, dismissed all Jews from, from the professions, from the military, from uh, banks, and so on. And the uh, church never protested against those. Uh, and other than uh, in a very limited way insofar as they uh, were being applied to baptized Jews who from the church point of view should not be treated as Jews, but treated as Catholics. So this is the, I think the context in which, you know, the attitude toward uh, Jews needs to be understood that certainly no, the Vatican didn't think Jews should be murdered on mass. And uh, Pope certainly was not happy about this at all. Uh, but on the other hand, the notion that Jews were a dangerous presence that needed to be separated from Christians and not given equal rights, this was very much Vatican policy at the time. Now, there was another question that you wrote about before the opening of the Vatican archives. And I'm wondering if <clears throat> to this point, again, I, I, you've said it'll take years to really go through all of this. So maybe not not to this point, but um, you talk about the the role the Vatican played in the rat line helping Nazis and fascist war criminals escape uh, to countries like Argentina. You say there's not really a question. Scholars don't really question whether the Vatican helped but um, or, or how much the church helped, but how much the Vatican knew, um, what they did to operate it, and if anyone there tried to stop it. So do we know any more about that now with these well, openings, or will that take more time? Yes. Yeah, so we're beginning to. I mean, for my book, I was concentrating, of course, on the war years. That's mm -hmm. the, the subject of the book. Uh, but more recently, as I mentioned, I've just been spent the last three months in, in uh, Italy working in Vatican archives on the post-war period. Uh, there, I think it's less the case that we, uh, that we would say the Vatican was kind of orchestrating a rat line for escaped uh, Nazis and so on. Um, but that the church, various church institutions and, and bishops and so on were, were helping uh, war criminals escape. That, that I think is, is very well established. What, if anything, for example, a Pope knew about this is, is not yet clear. Uh, that said, one thing that one does find in these newly opened archives are all the attempts by the Vatican, uh, and, and here the Pope is involved in trying to um, get the various war crimes tribunals in Nuremberg uh, and so on to show mercy toward the uh, charged Nazi war criminals. And so the Vatican is quite active uh, on behalf of a number of the uh, charged war criminals. I want to get to um, a very specific example in your book in a moment, but I, ha I have to ask you this question um, because I thought it was a really provocative statement that you made in one of your, your pieces, and um, I'm really interested. Uh, you wrote that the opening of the Vatican archives offers a timely opportunity to take a new look at the classic question of how fascism arises in democratic societies as it did in Italy and Germany. That's a heck of a statement. So, uh, but I, and I, I concur that I see some things going on in terms of appeasement, in terms of excusing bad behavior, in terms of, you know, siding with people because it serves your cause, even if it excuses a whole lot of awful behavior. But tell us what you meant by that statement. <laughs> well, there are different aspects, but, uh, you know, people ask me when, when Trump uh, was elected and given all that was going on. Uh, they'd say, well, you know, you're an expert on Mussolini. What does uh, that background, uh, what kind of insights does that give us about uh, Trump? 
My response would always be, well, actually, it's Trump that's given me a new insight into Mussolini and how Mussolini came to power. Because in uh, Italy, it was a democratic society with parliamentary system. And how was it that fascism could take root in Italy? Um, and how was it, for example, that the uh, Vatican, the church, could uh, back a person, Mussolini, who clearly had no religious bone in his body? Uh, and seeing some rather similar <laughs> developments in the United States with um, parts of the, of the church uh, strongly uh, that is now talking primarily about evangelical Protestant uh, groups strongly backing Trump, even though presumably they knew he didn't have a, a religious bone in his body. And it seemed to me a kind of a similar deal that um, and Mussolini, uh, perhaps like Trump, realized that having church support would be um, a big plus in their own solidification of influence and power. And so we're willing to make a trade that although personally they could care less about religion and religious matters, uh, they could give these churchmen what they wanted in the case of uh, the Vatican and, and Mussolini. They, in fact, uh, agreed to the Lateran Pact, which set up Vatican City. They ended separation of church and state, gave various privileges to the Catholic clergy and so on. So, yes, I think there are certainly uh, a number of similarities that, that one can see there. So before we move on, I don't want to belabor this point, but um, I, I have to ask you, as somebody who's for so long have studied has studied things like you know um, the church during fascist times and the rise of fascism and authoritarians, I'm assuming for much of this history it has seemed very foreign to the American system. But um, as you see this happening now, as you see fake electors and um, you know, legislatures trying to overturn elections and you see all this happening in the U.S. I mean, just your personal gut reaction as you see all this happening in your own country. Yes. No, I think it is alarming. In fact, <laughs> you know, I have my colleague, uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat at NYU has written a book, Strongmen. And um, certainly this notion that uh, we kind of assume as Americans, uh, democratic rule is what just built into our character. But I think what we realize is um, that's not true, that uh, there's a, an argument certainly be made that many people crave a strong leader uh, and um, can't really deal with dissent, don't really deal with critical analysis. Uh, and it's easy to create an alternative reality especially one in which you are somehow part of a persecuted group that uh, needs to defend itself. So uh, all these lessons, I think, from European fascism are very much, unfortunately, appropriate to our situation in the United States right now. So you write that Italians were not all that um, comfortable with and were uneasy with the idea of joining the, of joining the Germans in World War II and that Mussolini turns to the church to help him uh, make this case. So tell us a little bit about that. That's right. Although the Pope himself uh, formally takes a position of neutrality in the war, uh, Mussolini faced a, a problem. How was he going to motivate Italians to join the Germans in the, the Axis War, uh, which he would do in June of 1940? They had just, the Italians not that long ago, had fought a war, World War I, against the Germans. The Nazi ideology of Aryan racial supremacy was not going to go over too well in Italy for obvious reasons. And so uh, the Mussolini was very eager to get church support uh, for 
the Axis War, and uh, he was able to do so. So that uh, he announces the war against uh, the Italian, joining the war against Britain and um, France in on June 10th, 1940, and immediately the entire Italian church hierarchy and church organization uh, works to drum up uh, popular Italian support for taking part in the war. So, for example, uh, Catholic Action Organization, which is a capillary organization of the laity uh, of the Catholic laity throughout the country, the the directors all call on all, all good Catholics to do their Christian duty and. Um, answer the Mussolini's call to go to war. Uh, similarly, archbishops and bishops throughout the country do the same thing. The Catholic press editorializes the same thing. Uh, this is all the, the church hierarchy under the church, uh, under the Pope's control. Uh, so this uh, this was very valuable to Mussolini and his war effort. So, um, you know, when I teach in class, I have my students read books. I have them read journal articles. I know that they're not going to get the granular details and certainly, you know, the average everyday American is not going to remember all the dates and, and all the events and all the turns of the war and all the Pope's actions and all those sorts of things. But so make your case before we let you go. Um, one big sort of larger um, overall argument for this book as to why it's important, the big take home message that you think people will be able to glean from it. Well, for me, the, the big biggest question is what made possible the mass murder of uh, Europe's Jews in the middle of the 20th century, led by a country regarded as the most civilized, most cultured uh, nation uh, ever in the world. And, uh, and the fact is, there's a lot of denialism about how that was possible. And um, this is certainly in Italy, there's a denial of, I mean, when one talks to Italians, one thinks almost, one gets the impression that Italy was part of the Allies in the war and not part of the Nazis. But more generally, uh, the fact of uh, the, how centuries of demonization of Jews in Europe led in good part, not entirely, but in good part by the Christian churches, uh, how this would condition people to be able to exterminate uh, you know, millions of men, women, and children. And uh, it seems to me this is pretty important because it tells us something about human nature and something about hatred and something about uh, positive as well as the negative role of religion in human society. Uh, David Kurtzer, this has been wonderful. The new book, The Pope at War, The Secret History of Pius Twelfth, Mussolini and Hitler from Random House out this week. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it anywhere where you buy books. Go grab a copy. It's on the bestseller list I hear, which is awesome. Congratulations. Um, and just thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Smile and until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again
betrayals to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.